It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Joined, as always, by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. Thank you for your time, as always. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Some pretty interesting things on the docket this week, including the story everyone's been talking about, Beacon Hill Park. Take it away. Yes, indeed. So the uh, city uh, obtained a, an interim injunction to require uh, people to stop uh, tenting uh, in some areas of the park, uh, which were viewed as uh, sensitive from an environmental or a cultural perspective. Uh, that uh, decision, however, uh, in the, the view of uh, Council for the Friends of the Beacon Hill Park Society, uh, didn't go far enough. Uh, and uh, the argument uh, that is going to be, I think, uh, continue to be advanced by the friends of Beacon Hill, the friends of the Beacon Hill Park Society, okay. um, uh, are that the uh, utilization of the uh, park uh, for uh, semi-permanent tenting is inconsistent with the trust uh, and the trust terms under which the city of Victoria uh, holds the park. Um, the city of Victoria doesn't simply own Beacon Hill Park. It's yeah, not there to work? do it as they yeah. see fit. Yeah. Uh, and that requires a reflection back to the very long history of Beacon Hill Park. Um, the history goes back a very long way. W one of the interesting little tidbits goes back to prior to it being set up as a park. Uh, and there actually a very long time ago was some camping in Beacon Hill Park. Uh, but that was back in 1870. Uh, when the Victoria Rifle Volunteer Corps set up camp in what is now Beacon Hill Park, uh, they had organized themselves to uh, respond to what they thought was a Fenian threat, a raid by the uh, Irish immigrants uh, they thought might come against Victoria to pressure the Irish or pressure the British to get out of Ireland. Uh, so there was camping in 1870. Maybe some Mulligan relatives way back then were uh, plotting, a, uh, plotting a raid. The raid never came about. Uh, so a very long time ago, there was camping. I was going to say, uh, in those days, my O'Brien ancestors and my Sterling ancestors, being Irish and Scottish, may not have been the best of friends. No, that's true. One of them might have been uh, ensconced in the uh, Rifle Volunteer Corp, and the other might have been a uh, member of the uh, Fenian, <laughs> Fenian threat. Um, so what eventually happened is that the... Uh, the uh, Beacon Hill Park uh, was uh, uh, owned by the province of British Columbia. Uh, and the province of British Columbia um, granted the, or gave title to the park to the city of Victoria in 1882, uh, but they did so pursuant to a trust document, which was an order in council from February 21st, 1882. And essentially that document says that the city of Victoria um, is going to hold the park in trust, but may only use it in accordance with the terms of the trust. And the trust says that the city of Victoria may use it only for the purpose of the recreation uh, and enjoyment of the public. Mm. And they are not permitted to, you know, do other things with it. Uh, and that language was pretty quickly tested in court, because a short time after the city got the park in trust, uh, they tried to, or they permitted, the construction of an agricultural fair building on a corner of the uh, Beacon Hill Park. Uh, and the predecessors to the Friends of Beacon Hill Park challenged that and said, hey, hold on, that's not what this trust document uh, permitted. Um, and there was a court case that went to the B.C. Supreme Court in 1884, and it was a case heard by 
Judge Matthew Begbie, who probably one of the most famous historical judges um, in British Columbia history. Uh, the law school here used to be named the Begbie Building, uh, but it was uh, subsequently renamed. Uh, interestingly, uh, there there used to be a statue of Judge Begbie in the uh, entranceway to the law school, but a number of years ago it was mysteriously stolen um, and has now been replaced by other things. So back in 1884, Judge Begbie uh, had this challenge saying, hey, you can't build an agricultural building here. That's not what this trust allows. And he agreed. The building had to come down. Uh, and Judge Begbie ruled in 1884, looking at the terms of that trust, he said, look, you know, this could be, it's only to be used for these recreational purposes for the public, not other things. Uh, and he specified some things that might be acceptable, um, things including cricket fields or lawn bowling, I guess if they're accessible to the public, but specified a number of examples of things which could not be done by the city of Victoria. It could not be used as a university to build a sanitarium, to build barracks for soldiers, to build a, in his language, a lunatic asylum. Uh, or a cemetery, as there are various examples of things which would not be permitted. Now, would a sanitarium in those times be viewed as a place where sick people would be kept until they were well for tuberculosis consumption or other illnesses? Yeah, that would be the idea. Interesting. There, no, there were a number of other concerns back in the 1800s with the park. There was actually a city bylaw prohibiting various, uh, I guess at that time, troublesome activity in the park. Things that were prohibited by the city included the grazing of cattle, which apparently was an ongoing problem, the discharge of firearms. Also, you were not permitted to use the grass to clean your carpets, and no gambling was permitted. <laughs> well, we don't have problems with carpet cleaning and gambling anymore. Discharge of air rifles, though, becoming a concern. <laughs> yes, things have moved on. Uh, and that's not the last piece of litigation with respect to the park. Uh, listeners may, of course, remember uh, the case from back in 1998, where there was a proposal to set up fencing and have... Uh, uh, paid uh, music festival in the park. And that case as well went to the B.C. Supreme Court, and the judge at that point again looked at the trust and said, no, you can't do that. You can't set up fences and charge an admission. That's not a, a use which is um, sort of a use for the uh, you know, enjoyment and recreation of uh, the public. That's excluding people that don't have money to pay for the music concert. You can't do that. Yes. Now, I should say this, sharp-eared list listeners may be asking themselves, what about the rule against perpetuities, right? Mm. Surely you can't tie up the park for uses forever, right? You, you couldn't leave your house to somebody saying, look, you uh, must forever keep this as a, uh, you know, burial ground or something or whatever. And that's true. There is a, people may have heard of the rule against perpetuities that limits how long you can put conditions on property that you give to somebody in a trust, right? You can't. We don't want, as a matter of public policy, things to be tied up forever, uh, to be only be used for particular purposes. But that rather confusing rule, the rule against perpetuities, does not apply to the government where they dispose of property. Huh. Uh, and that's what happened here. This was a trust document created by the province of British Columbia, giving the park in trust to the city of Victoria. And because of the, it's actually Section 5 of the Perpetuity Act, that condition goes on forever. Uh, huh. Now, in the case of the province, I suppose the remedy would be, look, if you uh, created a trust document that, you know, mandated that a place could only be used to fix, you know, horse buggies or something, you could remedy that, of course, by some legislative act. Right? Or provincial order? Would that work? Lieutenant Governor and Council order? 
Um, I think you would need a piece of legislation yeah. to do it, right? Interesting. But, well, I, the only reason I ask is when this first started, one of the holdups that the mayor communicated to the public with respect to a, a planned camp uh, within Beacon Hill Park was they were awaiting on orders from the province were the words that were used that never were forthcoming. I'm wondering if that relates to this. She she may have been uh, referencing perhaps some order under the emergency legislation, okay. some ministerial order that would have been permitted. So okay. you, you could have, a, in ordinary times, you could have a piece of legislation which would sort of overrule those trust terms. But okay. basically, those terms of the trust, uh, that trust being set up in the 1800s, they go on forever. Huh. And the city just doesn't own that part to do with as they see fit. Uh, they are a trustee, uh, and they can only use the park for purposes that are permitted in that trust document. They just can't get outside those lanes. And if they do, uh, the expectation is that the Friends of Beacon Hill Park or some other group are going to go to court and they will wind up getting an injunction telling the city to stop doing that. Like well, the city can't yeah. set up a, you know, they can't go and build a public building on the park. They are certainly going to have problems if they start doing things like erecting fences and not letting members of the public uh, use it. And it seems to me the the Friends of the Park have a pretty compelling argument um, if you have the city saying, look, people can set up what amount to uh, sort of semi-permanent dwellings in the park, which would by their nature not allow people to use that portion of the park for the purpose that it uh, is intended, right? Yes. It, it, it can only be used uh, for those uh, purposes settled in the trust document. It cannot be used for other purposes, no matter how meritorious they might be. And so when there's a proposed use, you need to ask yourself, is this a use consistent with the recreation and enjoyment of the public? If not, city can't do that. The city doesn't have the authority to simply say, you know, we're going to fence off an area and designate this as a place for people to um, set up temporary shelters. That, looking at the trust documents and the cases that interpret it, that seems to be outside of the authority of the city. And so um, we have this interim injunction from the, that the city has obtained, uh, but it seems to me entirely likely uh, that somebody interested in the matter, be it the Friends of Beacon Hill Park or somebody else, are going to decide to bring an application to say, look, the city's uh, outside of uh, uh, its uh, obligations here as a trustee. Um, it's not permitted uh, to use the park to set up you know, agricultural pavilions. They can't set it up to have paid concerts. You're not allowed to build a hospital on it. There are all kinds of things you just can't do uh, because they don't own it in that way. It's not theirs to do with as they wish. They're simply a trustee, and in that capacity, the city is required to comply with the terms of the trust. And if they don't do that, uh, the expectation is that they'll wind up with an injunction telling them to stop. So it seems to me the, uh, what's currently happened is likely far from the end of what uh, is going to happen uh, in terms of the use of Beacon Hill Park. One thing I did want to ask you, uh, I was uh, reading through the application that the city filed. I don't know the difference between a statutory injunction and an equitable injunction. What does that mean? Well, statutory injunction would have some basis in legislation, right? Sort of a equitable, equitable one would be something other than that. Okay. Um, and what they've obtained is an interim injunction, so that would be sort of a, an injunction uh, which would be in place until there's a fulsome hearing of the merits of the city's uh, application. Yeah. But as I said, that interim injunction is unlikely to be the end of the matter. Okay. It's based on the uh, comments made by counsel for the... Um, the Friends of Beacon Hill Park Society, 
it seems overwhelmingly likely uh, that they're going to bring some uh, form of uh, application uh, for a broader injunction to get the city back in line with what it's permitted to do with Beacon Hill Park. Uh, they just don't. Uh, they just don't own it. Um, it's like okay. other circumstances where you might be a trustee if you. Uh, or a trustee of, for a will or something. Yes. Property isn't yours. You okay. can't just use it any way you see fit. Your obligation as a trustee, be it in a will or something like this, uh, is to use it in accordance with the terms of the trust. And that's the full extent of the authority the city of Victoria has. So who would speak ostensibly for the whoever owns the park? It would be the First Minister of British Columbia, John Horgan, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, the, the park is, is sort of in the possession of the city of Victoria. It's, it's sort of like if somebody passes away and their will establishes a trust and you are the executor of the will and you're holding property in trust. You okay. own the thing as a trustee, but it's not yours to sort of do with as you see fit, right? Okay. Like if you are a trustee of a will, you can't just move into the house of the person who passed away. It's not yours. You own it, but you're only permitted to use it in a way sort of in accordance with what the will permitted. Yeah. Um, and here, the city of Victoria, they own the park, but only in accordance with the terms of the trust. And so while they own it and they have uh, some degree of control over it, uh, they are only permitted to use the park for the purpose of recreation and enjoyment of the public. That's it. Uh, they can't uh, use it to build hospitals, agricultural pavilions, uh, military encampments, or anything else, no matter uh, how wise they might think those things are. Uh, and if they don't follow that, the expectation is that the, uh, they'll wind up with an injunction telling them to do what they're obliged to do with the park. That's the only basis upon which they, uh, they own it. Thank you so much for helping us understand some of the intricacies here, Michael. It certainly is a complicated situation. Well, I must say, anytime you're able to work the rule against perpetuities into a discussion of something, uh, you're really a well into the uh, weeds of a complicated circumstance. I actually did not even know that that rule existed, much less that it did not apply to government. So I'm learning all sorts of new things here. Yeah, you'll have to put aside your plans to uh, leave your house to somebody and trust. <laughs> In perpetuity, it must be used for some ridiculous purpose. Right? There we go. All right, let's uh, let's take a break. Uh, up next, we'll talk about an interesting situation regarding your personal information and my personal information and the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia. That's coming up. Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070 as we continue our conversation with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Anything else on Beacon Hill Park before we move on, Michael? No, we just uh, have to uh, keep our eye open for that uh, Irish invasion. It could happen any time now. <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, you can't trust any of us. No. Um, a, a class action against the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia, Michael, with respect to personal information and the duties the corporation and others have to protect it. What's happening here? Yeah, boy, this is a troubling case. Uh, this case involved an insurance adjuster working for ICBC. Uh, and the insurance adjuster, um, it was between uh, 2011 and 2012, um, was selling personal information of customers to drug dealers, uh, and the personal information they were selling was based on the license plates of cars that were parked at or near the Justice Institute of British Columbia in New West. And it would appear what was going on is that this insurance adjuster that worked for ICBC uh, was selling the drug dealers uh, all the contact and personal information of people who were parked near the Justice Institute uh, on the basis that the uh, drug dealers thought those people might be 
police officers, right? They're That's deeply troubling. That's very and troubling. So then the drug dealers were going around committing vandalism, arson, and shootings at the houses of the uh, police officers and others who had parked around the Justice Institute based on the personal information that the ICBC employee uh, was selling to the drug dealers. Awful. Uh, by the way, <laughs> the ICBC employee, it looks like she sold 78 people's uh, personal information and the drug dealers were paying her $25 each. Uh, the ICBC uh, insurance adjuster wound up uh, pleading guilty to uh, offenses relating uh, to that. I think it was unlawfully accessing computer uh, equipment, something to that effect. She received uh, nine months of probation and 40 hours of community work service, uh, but that was far from the end of the matter. Um, a number of the people that were targeted for the vandalism and shootings uh, that flowed from this breach of privacy by the ICBC employee um, sued ICBC uh, and, and got the matter certified as a class action. Good. ICBC resisted that, arms and legs outstretched, and the thing went all the way to the Court of Appeal, who ultimately agreed it should be certified and certified on the basis that it would include other people that lived in the homes that would be vandalized or shot at or lit on fire or various other things that were done. It wasn't restricted to just the 78 people. It could include family members and others that would be victimized by this conduct. And the class action could include uh, punitive damages, potentially, against ICBC. Um, What ICBC then tried to do some six years after this thing started and after it had been certified is they tried to um, what they call third party, that is, blame somebody else, um, adding those people to the litigation, saying, hey, look, if we, ICBC, are responsible, really it, this should be paid for by the drug dealers or the woman who we used to employ, right? Not us. Um, the problem with that is that if you wish to do that in the course of civil litigation, you're required to do it uh, within a short period of time after when you're sued, right? Yes. Like if somebody sues you and what your defense is is, well, yeah, I did it, but it's really this other person's responsibility over here. You've got to say so within 42 days of when you're sued. And if you don't do it within that time, you have to get permission to do it. Well, ICBC did neither of those things. They had six years had elapsed since the case had started. They didn't ask for permission of the court. And they just tried to say, look, not us, yeah, it's got to be the drug dealers or our employee, right? Those are the people that are responsible. And then they took the position, and this is really troubling, Yes. when it was pointed out to them that, hey, you didn't get permission and you're way out of time, uh, ICBC took a rather arrogant position, which was, well, we think we're right, and if you don't like it, you plaintiffs can go to court to get that set aside. Hmm. Um, that fell absolutely flat in a decision uh, which was just released by the Supreme Court uh, in B.C., um, on the 23rd of July, they said, look, absolutely not. This thing is a nullity. They didn't get permission, ICBC, to do this. They needed permission. That was entirely inappropriate. And I must say, one of the other things that's troubling about how ICBC has approached the thing um, is that it, it just displays a, a certain degree of, frankly, arrogance, right, in, in dealing with this sort of a claim. And you take the position that I'm clearly outside of what the rules require, but if you don't like it, you can go and ask somebody else to fix that, right? And that's pretty troubling, particularly in the context of the current debates surrounding whether we should have a mandatory no-fault scheme, where if you have other disputes with ICBC, you would not be able to go to court in the ordinary way to get them fixed. Of course, so, that's a great point. 
So if you're dealing with an entity that behaves in this way when dealing with members of the public who have been clearly wronged, there's just no doubt about it, right? People that have had fires started, their houses vandalized, treating people in that way and then telling them if you don't like it, you can go to court and try to you know, prevent us from behaving in this high-handed fashion doesn't correspond with a, the kind of uh, organization which you'd want to trust to make decisions which would not be readily reviewable by a genuinely independent body like the court is, right? And so it's just really troubling on that level as well. Um, frankly, when you have a claim of this sort, which clearly it occurred, right? There's just no doubt it happened. It's yes. pled guilty. It plainly happened. The response by ICBC should not be years of litigation and fighting over it and arms and legs outstretched and doing all of those things. The appropriate response to that would be pay for it, <laughs> right? This person who you employed sold information to drug dealers that caused serious harm, just pay for it. Right? Yeah, that seems reasonable to me. And if you want to try to get the money back from the drug dealers or the woman that you employed, power to you. But don't leave all these people high and dry, sort of police officers or their families or other people who were just had the misfortune of parking at the Justice Institute uh, and having this employee of ICBC sell their information for 25 bucks. Don't fight about that. That approach to sort of say, look, we're going to litigate everything to the ends of the earth. We're going to go to the Court of Appeal. We're going to fight about everything. We're going to try to blame other people for everything. That is a, an inappropriate institutional approach by what is supposed to be a public entity. A public entity like ICBC should not behave like some private insurance company that's trying to extract as much profit as they possibly can, no matter how that's done. They should be behaving in a fashion which is consistent with what they are supposed to be. Uh, and at a time when the proposal is to make a mandatory no-fault scheme so that really all of the power would lie with ICBC to determine how somebody is dealt with uh, and the review mechanism would be not independent of government in any way, that's really concerning. Um, and this case and how it's been handled should be getting some attention, and there should be a tune-up uh, in terms of how ICBC is behaving and how they're conducting themselves. This kind of thing shouldn't be litigated in this way. The instruction on high should be, pay this claim, uh, and if there's somebody else to be gone, you know, gone after, do you think you can get all this money back from the insurance adjuster that you employed? Well, good luck to you. Uh, but you shouldn't make all of these people uh, wait for that to happen. It's clearly a claim that's got merit, uh, and they should just pay it uh, and stop uh, fighting over the thing. Uh, just because there is an argument to be made doesn't mean you should be making that argument, uh, particularly when you're a government uh, agency like ICBC is. Very true. Michael Mulligan, thank you as always for your knowledge and your insight. We appreciate these segments every week. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Until next time, sir. Take care. Thank you. Bye now. Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking.